This is Women and Justice, and my name is Dr. Shantae James. For this episode, I'm looking at gardens. Yes, I did say gardens. Let me read you some information from the speaker's book, which is entitled First Gardeners, Norfolk Botanical Gardens. Gardens help us relate to the exciting world of nature around us. Gardens are a fusion of science and art. These spaces are a chance to connect with the four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Different plants and flowers grow each season. The colors and smells are amazing. They constantly evolve and continuously attract different birds, insects, and small animals. Gardens of all sizes are a chance to see, smell, touch, and hear nature. Have you ever imagined the origins of your favorite garden? Do you ever question who took the time to plan and plant the beautiful flowers that you see? For me, I've never done this stuff. I just looked and said, how beautiful, and kept moving. But the speaker made me stop. In this episode, I'm going to make you stop. Let me turn over the mic to the speaker as she officially introduces herself and highlights her body of work as it relates to the podcast. Okay, um, my name is Dr. Martha Williams. I am uh, from Virginia, grew up on a farm and love anything dealing with nature and growing fruits, vegetables, grain. Uh, we did it all when I was growing up. And uh, I have been in higher education uh, for the majority of my career and many different areas of higher education from the Cooperative Extension Service, uh, which was adult education. And I also uh, worked in uh, at the University of uh, Botswana, helped them open their child development uh, center. My area is really family and child development, although I've done many different things, including a recruiter for graduate students. So, um, but higher education is really my field. And I finally ended my career at Hampton University and I was uh, director of teacher education there and supervised student teachers. So I pretty much um, worked the entire spectrum, I guess, of uh, family life education and um, especially interested in uh, women and youth. Okay. Um, you've done a gamut of things, but I specifically, cause I don't want to miss out on this point. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to go to your book first and okay. the topic of it and then how you got started. So, um, can you tell us the name of the book first? Sure. Uh, the topic of my book, um, uh, it is, um, the, um, uh, it's called a WPA. I'll just show you a picture of it as well. And it's uh, the WPA Original Gardeners. And um, I uh, developed this interest in the WPA project because as a faculty member at Hampton University, I was asked to get involved in a community service project. Well, when I went to my first board meeting, 
a group of students, middle school students came to the board and wanted to help the garden um, develop a community service uh, project dealing with diversity. And so we began to look at uh, how to increase a um, diverse population at the garden. And the students in doing their research, they found that uh, there were 200 African-American women and 20 men who were the first gardeners at the Norfolk Botanical Garden. Well, Vola, no one knew that. I didn't uh, know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In 1965, Frederick Hewitt, who was the director, first director, retired in 1965. He was asked by Tommy Thompson to uh, develop this plot of land. There were, um, it, it was 100, and, 100 acres of land. And the land was just not uh, something that you could cultivate. It was swampy, it was full of trees, all kinds of insects, snakes, turtles, you name it. Well, this was land that was owned by the city. Well, at the same time, this is in 1938, at the same time, the city is developing an airport just across the road. And they have heavy equipment, machinery, men working in uh, in this project. Well, the uh, it was during the Great Depression, of course, uh, 1929, 1942. And so what the students found out uh, in doing their research is that there were 200 African-American women and 20 African-American men who worked on this project. And uh, when we think in terms of uh, women, I think in justice, we um, there's a lot to be said, but that's that's my pro that was my project. I uh, began to work with the students in the garden, and I just couldn't find any information on what had happened. We didn't even know who the women were, men were, except five names were in the records. The other names were not there. So uh, that was a uh, project for the students. They began to do oral history projects uh, of the people that they uh, that they found just by word of mouth. We went to civic leagues, churches to find out, do you have relatives, anyone who worked at the garden? So we we got we interviewed some of the families. I think there were 11 initially. And um, I just became intrigued by it. And I always say the project found me. I didn't find it. OK, <laughs> because I just went to serve on this board for three years. I ended up extending for another three year term. And um, that was in 2003. And it is now 2023, and I'm not on the board, but I'm also I am on a president's committee on diversity and inclusion. So I've never uh, I've never left the garden in terms of uh, working. So, I, but that's how I came upon the subject that I'm working on. It was a uh, something that I found out by volunteering at Norfolk Botanical Garden and really became intrigued with the subject because I just couldn't find information. And finally, from the interviews and the research that I did, uh, which was very minimum, uh, my daughter said, well, you just need to go ahead and write the book um, and do as much research, interview as many people as you can. So in the book, I highlight the uh, 15 ladies who worked in the garden. And I give a little background about the garden, how it got started, why it got started. and um, 
and then I list the names. We started out with uh, two names. We thought that all of the people who had worked in the garden were deceased, but they found the students found one person still living. And then later we found another lady that was um, that was living. So, okay, I don't want to take away too much from the book, but can you give Mm -hmm. us like a little spoiler, you know, a little, little, a little bit to kind of spark everyone's whistle? Okay, uh, about the book, um, we, uh, Mrs. Ferguson, I guess that was kind of the highlight of the book, uh, did not want to be identified. See, in 1933, Norfolk was a community that was thriving. In in, um, 1909, a black bank um, was in the city. There were 25 lawyers. There were doctors. There were many, many professional people in Norfolk. You had 13 schools in Norfolk. You had school teachers. You had shop owners in Norfolk. And so the city of Norfolk was, was a wonderful place. And many people from the surrounding areas moved to Norfolk because you could go to, they had private colleges. They had public college. You could go to college there finish high school, many of the rural areas, you could only go to seventh grade. But if you moved to Norfolk, you could. Norfolk had the railroad, the ship um, shipbuilding, it had uh, factories, they had fishing, oysters, um, cigar factory, auto manufacturing. Norfolk, Norfolk was really a thriving place for the city of Virginia, although Virginia is primarily a farming community. But if you wanted to progress, you could move to Norfolk. And uh, But then when the Great Depression came, it just really uh, halted all of that. So people lost their jobs. They lost their home. The uh, bank closed. None of the white banks closed in Norfolk, but the African-American bank closed. And, um, and people came together. And I guess the important thing that I found out doing this is that People really wanted to work. Now, this is 1933. Receiving any kind of relief was a no-no. You just, you did not want to be on that relief roll. And so people were looking for work. And when these 200 women signed up to work, they wanted to have a sense of pride. They wanted to have a sense of dignity. They didn't want to hand out. And most importantly, they didn't want their children to have to receive a handout and they wanted to survive. And that's what happened. So I guess when I look at the book, I look at it as a book that evolves around friendship, unity, working together, and a sense of just camaraderie. Many of the ladies didn't know each other because Norfolk um, has and still has several different, um, I guess you might call it subdivisions within the city, but they came together. And uh, what the ladies that we met said was that they formed friendships. They helped each other. So if uh, they had ladies cutting down trees, there were they would place three ladies on a tree. They had no type of mechanical equipment. They were all hand tools. They had pickaxe, they had hoes, they had shovels, they had spades. They had no trucks. They used wheelbarrows, they used buckets to haul dirt. And I guess the unbelievable part is they moved the equivalent of 150 truckloads, truckloads of dirt by hand. 
Wow. And uh, as it relates to, uh, and you can stop me at any time if no, you want me to it's go very, in another no, direction. No, 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 I, okay. I will, but I just wanted to make okay. sure it's it's very okay. interesting. And I didn't know this knowledge at all. So um, I thank you for it. So no, okay. I'm good. <laughs> okay. And as we speak of um, what is, is really intriguing, I mean, there are several different aspects, but when you think in terms of women and justice and women and fairness, uh, with this WPA project, uh, and WPA stands for Work Progress Administration, and we know that when uh, President uh, Franklin Roosevelt came to office in 1933, it was a 25% unemployment rate in the country. Uh, the, uh, the Great Depression had just rocked everyone across the country. People lost their jobs. And and so and Norfolk wasn't unusual, but Norfolk was a Virginia was a state that did not want to participate in the WPA or the New Deal because they said Virginia was not a big industrial state like some of the other, uh, and that Virginia always take care takes care of itself. But we know that Virginia did participate in the WPA, even though the state did not pay its fair share because the federal government put in some part, some money and the states were supposed to add the other part. And, and that didn't happen. But just going back to uh, this women in justice, they, we, we questioned why women, why were women asked to clear a swamp? It was it was thick. It was just land, uh, waterlogged land. And so with 20 men and the women said that the men only shop in the tools. They didn't really do the work. <laughs> but, <laughs> so we saw pictures of women carrying buckets, uh, two women, one on each side. We saw them uh, pushing wheelbarrows together, helping each other. And um, we also found out that there were some ladies working in a sewing factory at the um, at the Black Hospital, Norfolk Community Hospital, and they had been working in the sewing factory receiving WPA funds because there were many different kind of WPA projects. Some were construction projects, some were uh, city beautification projects. Uh, of course, we know many artists got paid doing the WPA and uh, journalists and stories were written and they went around different communities uh, recording stories about slavery and whatever uh, doing just to put people to work. But uh, in Norfolk, you had a sewing project as well. And there were 60 ladies working on the sewing project. Well, the WPA officials came in on a Friday evening and told them that they didn't have any more money for the sewing project. But uh, the good news was that they did have a job for them and they told them they would be working in a nursery. Okay, well, that sounds reasonable. And of course, they wanted to continue working. And uh, so they went um, about closing down the sewing factory. Well, the, uh, on Monday morning, they took them to the swamp where they had already started working. And that's where they took them to work. Well, they closed the sewing factory for two weeks. And in uh, two weeks, they opened it back up with all white women. And um, this was reported in the newspaper. And what the officials said was that the black women were accustomed to stoop work and the white women were not. So they um 
had, because some of the women did work in a um, a farming area before the WPA, the uh, city of Norfolk was Princess Anne County then. It was a big uh, agricultural area and they ship produce and greens and, and different types of potatoes all over the East Coast and many women worked there. And so the the way that they wrote the article was that the women were all uneducated uh, and uh, had been working in farming area. But uh, the ladies that worked on this WPA project included uh, women who were college educated, um, women who uh, worked in different kind of businesses, women who worked in administration. So, and then there were some ladies who had maybe um, elementary education. So there were all levels, but that really did not make a difference when they came to, when it came to working together, they all worked together uh, without regard to the background uh, of the latest. So, but the, um, I guess another important point to make when we think in terms again of women and justice, when we try to figure out why women and not men, yes, because um, the women were paid less money than the men. The uh, one of the things that um, President Roosevelt said in the New Deal was that we would have equal pay. And that was a big, uh, of course, big contention there. But we would have equal pay among men and women and in the in the states. But we do know that some of the states, uh, they call it wrangled with the government and um, were and they were able to get a deal where they would pay African-Americans less than they paid whites. The um, and in some areas it was much it was as much as 30 cents less. But one of the things that I found intriguing in doing my research is that in and I'm not sure which state it was, but in one area there were um, there were 15,000 uh, African-Americans in the community in that state or in that area, 15,000, and they received, uh, the 15,000 received 45% of the WPA money, and 5,000 whites received 55% of the money. So you can do the math and see what the difference in the pay was uh, in the different communities. So I think when we think in terms of women, um, they knew that the women wanted to work, and regardless of what the job was, they uh, decided that they would take it and they would make um, a success out of it. And um, and so they worked. But there were some really ugly articles that were in the paper about the women in terms of their uh, lack of status or lack of capability, their education. And uh, and and of course, they were reading this because they were reading, but very little they could do about it. So and. Uh, I'm sorry. So let Go me ahead. ask you a question because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I want everyone to make sure that they get the book. So can you mm -hmm. give me the title of the book again? Oh, it, the, the book, um, it's uh, WPA Original Gardeners. It's WPA Original Gardeners. And my name, again, is Martha McClenney Williams. And that's M-C-C-L-E-N-N-Y. And it is available on um, Amazon. They can... Um, they can find it on Amazon. I have also just, uh, I'll add this, I published that book in 2016. 
Um, it took me, I would say, I started working on a project in 03, 2016, and I um, just, I retired in 2008. And so that's when I began to do more research. And I guess about four years uh, in terms of really seriously working on the book. And it just kind of bothered me that Norfolk Botanical Garden has, um, it's it's one of the venues in the city that all of the Norfolk Public School elementary school students visit during the year because of the environmental aspect of it, uh, the nature aspect of it, sustainability. And, and so it tries to uh, expose the students to the garden and gardening and just um, each year, they have busloads of students. And I thought we need to have something that parents can purchase uh, for students. So I wanted to write a children's book. So last year, uh, from January until November, I worked on the children's book. So I have a children's book that tells the story of the gardeners as well. And the title of that is First Gardeners. So that's um, and that's published by Friesen Press, F-R-I-E-S-E-N. It's Canadian publishing company. So um, that's available Friesen Press, Amazon, as well as Barnes and Noble. So uh, and it's also available local bookstore. Uh, I'm in Norfolk, Virginia, so it's available at uh, Prince Books here. But I thought it was important to uh, provide a book that um, children would be interested in. And with that book, I uh, tested it out on a group of elementary students, fifth grade through, uh, I'm sorry, um, kindergarten through fifth grade, and uh, wanted to make sure they understood it. And, um, and the fifth grade class even illustrated it for me. I had no illustrations, so they illustrated it for me. Um, so the first gardeners is um, it's about 16 pages long and um, with 32 all together because the text is on one side and the picture is on the other side. And I also have the poem. One of the gardeners daughter wrote a poem that she dedicated to her mother. And I included that poem in that book. And uh, she's still living, uh, lives in North Carolina now with her son. But um, the. There was a lot of, um, with the gardeners, there was a lot of shame. And I can tell you a story that um, many people find intriguing is that many of the uh, grandchildren, the, the, the sibling, siblings knew about their parents working in the garden, but it was not something that they talked about outside of the household. It, uh, because it was not something that they felt good about. These ladies were working in the most horrendous condition. As I said, using pickaxe, shovel, hoes, wheelbarrows, buckets. And there was even a group uh, from the city, a group of ministers and uh, social workers went to the WPA office and protested because they said that the women were just being so unfairly treated, being treated so unfairly. The work that, that they were doing should be done by a team of horses or at least men. And so um, that kind of blew them off when they went and talked with the people in the city. Then when they went to uh, Richmond, because they didn't get any satisfaction in office, so they decided to go to the regional office. 
the same thing happened. But as they were protesting, the latest never stopped working because they knew that they were taking a paycheck home, even though they were paid below the WPA standard wages, they were taking home 25 cents an hour. So they were taking home about $17.50 every two weeks. And that was, as one of the sons said, that was mighty good pay during that time. If you were making that type of money, put food on the table, and it also helped them provide fuel in the winter. One of the sons said that the, the latest work beginning September 1938, in the fall, they worked 12 months a year. They worked from September 1948 until the spring of 1942, summer, winter, fall, spring. And in the winter, this, uh, a son of Mrs. Sally Tucker, who was the valedictorian of her class at Booker D. Washington High School. She was a high school teacher and also a basketball coach, had a winning basketball team. But then during the Great Depression, they closed most of the schools and she lost her job. Her father was a teacher also. He said that things were so tight, father couldn't find a job, so the father left searching for a job, but he never came back. But the mother found a job at the Norfolk Botanical Garden. And so he said he and his brother in the morning, they would wrap their mother's legs with, he said, rags and cloths to keep some of the coal out of her, off her legs. They would make a fire in the morning and they would, uh, she would sit by the fire and they would wrap her legs. She would go to work and they had transportation to pick them up. So a truck would come to a designated spot in the community and pick up all the people in that area. And they move from one area to, to another. They would pick them up. She would have to cook breakfast in the morning. She would have to get them ready for school. And she would have to uh, prepare her own lunch. And they generally work from 7.30 until 4.30. They said until dark they, is when they work. And so, and then in the evening when his mother, in the winter, when she came home in the evening, they, they said that her legs were like frozen. So they would have a fire in the evening and they would peel the, the clothing, the cloth off of her legs. So there were many ladies because of the economic circumstances did not have boots. So they just had the regular lace up shoes that they wore. And, and the other intriguing thing is that during that time in the 1930s, ladies didn't wear pants. So these ladies were out there working in that swamp with uh, rags around their legs, few head boots, and many used cloths to wrap their hands because they were using iron tools. These are not the little light aluminum shovels like we use today or the light wheelbarrows. These were iron wheelbarrows, iron shovels and pickaxes that they were using in each each individual that worked out, there was assigned tools. They had their own tools that were assigned. But um, he said that they they didn't complain. And then in the summer, there were snakes and mosquitoes. They would put something like maybe camphor oil on their body and a long sleeve shirt to keep the mosquitoes and everything else flying around in the summer. But they worked um, 12 months a year. Uh, regardless of what the weather was like. So and uh, so let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. As you're gaining this knowledge and 
getting this information, did you feel like this is a history that we don't want to tell? Or did you, especially as you talk to some of the family members that were hesitant to claim, um, did you feel like it was more important to make sure that the history was told so it was told correctly? Because I, I know for myself, I didn't know this story at all. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you another little tidbit. Okay. The, the last gardener that we met, um, that was Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Ferguson. Uh, she died in 2017 and she was 98. Uh, when the notice went out in the papers, uh, there were in the, the African-American paper, the Norfolk Journal Guide, and also the Virginian Pilot did a story that there were students looking for people who may have worked um, in the Norfolk Azalea Garden. It's what, what, it, what it was called initially. They wanted to know if there were any relatives because they were trying to put together a list of people that worked. In, and so the, um, so when the notice went out in um, 20, uh, it was 20, uh, 2003, uh, Mrs. Ferguson, who was the last gardener that we knew, did not come forth. It took her three years to come forth. She did not want to be associated with that. It was in the past. It was history. It was done. It was nothing she felt good about, nothing she felt proud of. She did not want to have anything to do with it. So as people were coming forth, her relatives, um, her cousin is the one that kept insisting to her that you really need to call them and let them know that you are still alive identify yourself as one of the gardeners. And so finally she convinced her and um, she was the person. And so what Norfolk Botanical Garden finally did, I'm kind of jumping ahead, was decided that after the students found uh, some of the gardeners, began to interview them. And by the way, I didn't tell you this, the students at Ruffney Middle School who had started this project, Problem Solvers International, and uh, who had to solve a community problem. Uh, they won first, play, first place in an international competition with their story regarding the garden. Okay. Uh, 22 countries and all of the states, <clears throat> they won first place. So Mrs. Ferguson finally came on board and, um, and she became the star. <laughs> it was so funny. She became the star of the garden. Okay. Uh, and, um, when the unveiling and so Norfolk Botanical Garden decided that we need to do something because we've never recognized them. We've never honored them. It was just swept under the rug. Right. Um, what this history was, the people that worked at the garden didn't even know the history. And so and Mrs. Ferguson was there to unveil the sculpture. There's an eight foot sculpture there. And uh, it was just uh, probably just not a dry eye, I guess, at the setting when it was unveiled and she was there to unveil it. So but in terms of your question, um, it Mrs. Ferguson, again, not wanting to identify herself as one of the gardeners, the second year that we held the ceremony and we have a ceremony now each year, WPA Heritage Day, the second year 
that we held the ceremony. Mrs. Ferguson had 50 family members at the celebration. So I guess the the, the moral of the story is, um, as Carter G. Woodson said, if we don't know our history, then uh, it really gives us no legacy. It gives us not a, uh, uh, it doesn't give us that kind of cultural uh, undergirding that we need to feel good about ourselves. And so if we know our history, we tell our history, and um, it just makes a difference. And so once a positive light came out of this story, and it wasn't seen as something that people did, uh, it wasn't seen as the negativity that the Virginian pilot printed in the newspaper. It was seen as something that was a backbone uh, for the Norfolk Botanical Garden. And Norfolk Botanical Garden at that point embraced the history and actually uh, worked with the families trying to identify the families and begin to celebrate what they had done. So, and uh, so, yes, I, the history, history should be told. And the reason I guess another reason I wrote the story is I was there when the story was uncovered. I listened to the stories of the families. I wanted it to be told the way it was told, because I knew if I did not or somebody like me did not, it would have a different spin on it. So and the, I thought it important to tell it the way it was supposed to be told. So in ensuring that, then the bigger question to me or what I need to pose to you next is, mm -hmm. do you see the celebration as a level of justice or have we reached justice in relation to this time period historically? I, the celebration is a is a bandage there. Uh, I, I think that the the garden uh, has embraced it, has come a long way, because initially when we had the celebration, it was stated that, oh, we would have this. We, we've unveiled this sculpture. We have this garden. Oh, great. OK, so we've done that. And uh, had it not been for a diversity committee and people on the diversity committee, I think it would have been an unveiling. And that's it. Uh, people would come to the garden. The sculpture would be over there. And nobody knows it's over there uh, because we we still have to insist that you tell the story when you tell the story, uh, because it can be left out. Um, the tour of the garden doesn't go over to that part of the garden because of the difficulty in getting the tram and whatever. <laughs> so um, so it still has to be, it's still important to remind. So I would say justice has come a long way, but it's still something that we have to be vigilant about. Um very much so. Okay, so then let me layer that question. So mm -hmm. how do you define justice? And then based upon your definition, 
how can we achieve that level of justice with the garden? I think it's phenomenal that you uh, wrote the book, especially for kids, Mm -hmm. because I think when you introduce it, uh, concept and history to kids, it just stays with them. um, So Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful you made the book for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do we ensure that that knowledge is is sustained over time or people know it Mm -hmm. in your mind? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And there are some things that are going on there. Um, One of our local artists um, who is outstanding African-American artist developed a, oh, I guess it's about a five by six um, portrait of uh, ladies with dresses on and boots on. And she just does beautiful uh, African-American artwork. And so that was, uh, she she developed it, she called it the Garden Club. And she dealt, developed it because she heard the story of the latest. And the garden purchased that from her. It took, oh, five, six, seven years to raise the money to purchase it. But uh, she did get her price and they purchased it. So that was very good. And the um, the heritage celebrations, uh, it was kind of suggested we'll do it every five years. Well, if someone said they're going to do something every five years, we know you're really putting it aside and it just will go by the wayside. So now that's an annual. The diversity committee continues uh, to meet and Norfolk Botanical Garden now provides scholarships for um, students to who are interested in studying in the area of environmental and, and gardening. So uh, Norfolk Botanical Garden is making an effort to hire more African-Americans because when the students started this project, they said that they wanted their project was the problem that they wanted to solve was to help Norfolk Botanical Garden increase the diversity at the garden. And this was a diverse group of students, very mixed group of students. And they said that they had been coming to the garden for years. And whenever they came to the garden, they only saw white people, people that attended the garden, people that worked at the garden, people that participated in bands or garden activities or dramatizations, whatever. And so they want, they said it did not represent the city of Norfolk, which was about 45%, I guess, 40% African-American. And uh, so it, um, so there's, there is strong movement in the, in the area. Uh, In terms of continuous, so I think it's something that you can't leave, to chance is just something you have to continue to be vigilant about. And uh, last year, the speaker was the head of diversity for the state of Virginia. I'm not sure we still have that position in Virginia now. With, um, but anyway, the, it, it is something, I think, in terms of justice, uh, the intent is there, but it's something that you have to keep working with. It's not anything that can just leave to chance okay. and say it will automatically happen. Which I believe. All right. We unfortunately mm-hmm. are getting close mm-hmm. to time. I didn't even touch on your expe- uh, experience <laughs> at the college, but I will have you back. I will have you back. Um, so I want to make sure that no one, e- I will have her back because uh, <laughs> I'll get the emails and be like, you didn't even talk about the other half. Okay. Um, 
So before we go, though, is there anything, um, can you leave us with some final words to say, um, we talked about a lot of different things, but don't forget, what do you want us to not forget? I, I, I would like to say this, I know women in justice, going back to that topic, I think we just have to remember that mentorship, uh, writing our stories. We we need to, no matter what your level is of writing, but just write, uh, journaling, writing your stories. We need to talk with our elders. We need to find those. There are so many hidden stories, such as the WPA Original Gardeners. Uh, in the city of Norfolk, we have Evelyn Butts, who was the one responsible for removing poll taxes. There's so many stories. We have the Norfolk 17 that integrated the schools in Norfolk. There's so many wonderful, beautiful things that not only African-American women, but women in general. We still have uh, Women's History Month, African-American History Month. So whenever we have those special months, I think there is some inequity there. Uh, there's, we need to be continuously looking at justice. And we need to just think in terms of mentoring. Um, we need to think in terms of internships and just education, education. Employment is very important. As we, um, as we educate women and girls, I think we educate our nation because women and girls still are the ones that are primarily responsible for raising the children. And if we put a lot into that, a lot of effort into that, and um, if we are very careful in terms of what we provide for our young children and the kinds of experiences we offer them, I think we'll have a better society. And uh, just always think in terms of developing the self-confidence, self-esteem. And um, so I think that would be my parting words. All right. Thank you so <laughs> much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Gardens help us to relate to the exciting world of nature around us. This sentence seems so simplistic. But as the speaker stated, we never took the time or take the time to wonder who made it so beautiful. Today, we all had a chance to hear those marginalized voices. Remember, for me, do not keep the knowledge to yourself. Make sure that you are spreading it to someone else. Thank you for listening. And remember, my third book comes out. Yes, I'm nervous. It's a cozy. But before that date, November 14th, I have quite a few speaking engagements and book signings. Please look me up on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram for the next event. Have a great day.